Hello, this is Carlos Pasquale, and welcome to Sierra Week Conversations by IHS Market. This has been an exclusive series that have focused on the transitional issues of our time. And today we want to take a moment to reflect with you and have a conversation about an issue that changed the world, the tragic events of September 11th, 2001. We seek in this conversation to pay tribute and to honor those who lost their lives by learning from those events, we seek to honor them further to be able to take the lessons that have been drawn over the last 20 years. And in this conversation, I have an opportunity to share the discussion with one of the preeminent foreign policy and security analysts of our time, Michelle Flournoy. Michelle is the managing partner of West Exec Advisors. She is the chairperson of the Center on New American Security. She has been the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy and a good friend. Michelle, um, it's a pleasure to have you here and have this discussion together. It's great to be with you, Carlos, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Michelle, let's, let's jump in with the context, the foundation. If we think about September of 2001, the United States was seen as the only superpower in the world uh, China was just entering into the WTO. It was the beginning of the Vladimir Putin era. And if you think back to that time, how would you characterize the principal security challenges that were facing the United States and facing the world globally and how they've changed over these last 20 years? So you're right, Carlos. It was a, a brief sort of unipolar moment, if you will, where the US was the sole superpower um, you know, the Cold War had ended, the Soviet Union had come apart, um, Russia was dealing with many internal issues, as frankly was China, still very much focused on poverty alleviation internally and not really playing a, a very assertive role on the world stage. And so the U.S. was primarily um, focused at that moment on instability and failing states uh, around the world, this was a period of Somalia and Haiti and the Balkans and, and so forth. And so when 9-11 occurred, while you know national security experts might have been aware of Al-Qaeda and the, the threat of violent extremism or global terrorism, most of the American people were not. So 9-11 was a real shock. Um, and it did uh, sort of create a, a pivot point in our national security focus that I think has really lasted for much of the last 20 years. Um, and indeed, you're absolutely right. 9-11 put global terrorism, transnational terrorism on the world stage in a way that we never imagined. And afterwards, military spending doubled. And can is it fair to say that 9-11 changed the way that we think about war, the way that we think about what it takes to protect the nation's security? Um, it does. I mean, on the on the positive side, it was a moment when the nation really rallied and came together, and our inter you know our differences became small in the face of this shared threat. Um, it also forced us to get our hack together in terms of information sharing, intelligence sharing between intelligence agencies, the Department of Defense, the Department of State, the Department of Treasury, um, the law enforcement. And so we were we started to fuse intelligence and put the picture the pieces of the puzzle together in a way that we hadn't done before. 
Um, and then we went into Afghanistan, which of course had a just cause at the beginning, given that that was the safe haven from which Al Qaeda had attacked us. But I think the, one of the missed opportunities was that we, from the start, took a very military-focused approach to counterterrorism, um, and that did change how the military operates. The intelligence operations fusion that happened, the speed and pace and of the cycles of operations that were necessary to actually disrupt Al Qaeda and then really degrade it um, substantially. Um, and eventually led to the success of the bin Laden raid. Those were very important military transformations that I think the leaders of the military today, that's, that's the era, they, that's the transformation they lived, right? But we missed the opportunity to invest in the other instruments of national power, you know, our diplomatic instruments, our informational instruments, leveraging our development instruments to go after some of the root causes of violent extremism. Um, and even, you know, on the treasury side, the financial instruments, again, some improvement, but nothing, nowhere near the same level of investment that we made on the military side. And, and indeed, when we think about the military investments, so much of it was focused on Afghanistan and Iraq. And then we think about the world afterwards and ask the question, where does transnational terrorism exist? And it's obviously much, much far broader than that. And I guess if one is looking back on this, um, is part of the lesson here that there needs to be a much broader approach to the concept of security, that it's not just a localized investment in a military capability, but something that has to give us a global reach. Yeah, no, I, I think we have to have a global perspective, certainly when it comes to terrorism, but also other transnational threats, be it, you know, climate change or nonproliferation or preventing the next pandemic, you know, we've got to do that. But on counterterrorism, what we've learned over time is that, you know, it's one thing to have, you know, a kinetic approach that sort of gets at a specific target or disrupts a specific plot. But if you really want to create sustainable change over time, you've got to build local partners and capacity, and which makes the kind of advise and assist role uh, of the military that much more important. And that's really what we're doing around the world now. We were doing it in Afghanistan. We still are doing it in Iraq. We're doing it in Yemen, in, um, in Syria and elsewhere. And that's really essential. We're not the front end of the fighting, but we're building capacity at a local level. What again has been missing is that military capacity at the local level needs civilian oversight, needs broader governance, needs development more broadly if it's going to be sustainable and really have the desired impact over time. And our, and our focus on building that non-military capacity in these countries has not necessarily been as, as successful or, or well-resourced. Let's bring this back to the issue of Afghanistan, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. If, we, if we're looking ahead, what are the issues that we in the international community need to be concerned about? Uh, Pakistan, its nuclear weapons, jihadist threats. Um, what, are, what are the principal issues, the hot buttons that are of concern at this point? Well, first of all, I think Afghanistan itself is going to trend towards a failing state. I don't believe there's such a thing as a kinder, gentler Taliban. Um, especially given some of the folks they've put in charge uh, from the Haqqani network in particular. 
Um, so, you know, we're going to have uh, continued instability emanating out of uh, Afghanistan in the region, be it refugees, be it um, drugs, be it illicit, other forms of illicit um, trade um, uh, and so forth. Um, for the region, you're going to have see the Pakistan Pakistanis really try to cozy up to the Taliban to prevent further terrorist attacks inside Pakistan. You're going to see the Chinese um, try to get uh, some advantage in investing and getting access to strategic minerals and resources from Afghanistan and sort of turning a blind eye to the, the chaos and the, and the negative uh, developments internally. You're going to see Russia worry about uh, how this will impact its problems in Chechnya and so forth. You're going to see Iran worrying about refugee and drug flows across their borders. So a lot of um, competing and jockeying among the regional powers to influence uh, the new government. Meanwhile, I think you're going to see the US, its NATO allies, the G7, try to use the leverage of Afghanistan's dependency on international assistance, the sanctions that are still in place, the frozen assets that are still frozen. <laughs> Um, all of that is leveraged to try to negotiate some accommodations from the Taliban and some right and left limits, um, both on human rights issues, but also on, you know, letting people leave. We still have Americans in Afghanistan. We still have international passport holders in Afghanistan. We still have at-risk Afghans who helped us or the families of American, Afghan families of Americans who haven't been allowed to get out. So we, we have some serious negotiating to do. Um, with the Taliban. Um, longer term, I think, unfortunately, I think the Eastern Afghanistan is going to become a safe haven for, for terrorism again. It won't happen immediately, but we've seen ISIS there, Al Qaeda is coming back. This is going to be something that over the next two to five years, we're going to have to pay attention to. Um, can't, can't just completely assume that just because we left, it's no longer a problem. I think underscoring that point of what happens in the future of Afghanistan is key and what happens to the Afghan people, what happens to those who had been friends and, and supporters and partners with the United States, with other countries that were involved in the military mission there and the humanitarian mission is going to become particularly important. And I think there are going to be lots of headlines on that. But your point about Eastern Afghanistan is critical. And I, I wonder, Michelle, as we put these pieces together, are we, are we potentially gonna find a situation internationally where the United States, where other countries can do as was proposed in the whole argument and part of the argument of withdrawal, to be able to focus on strategic issues globally more effectively, or is attention gonna be increasingly taken up by individual hotspots that weren't anticipated ahead of time? Well, I think the, the Biden administration is, um, hoping and working for the former. You know, that I think part of the vice president's motivation was a desire to shift the focus to the more consequential national security challenges as he sees them, especially the rise of China and the, the managed competition with China and finding areas where we can cooperate with China. Um, and, you know, deterring Russia and its negative behaviors, deterring Iran, getting a, get, trying to get Iran back in the nuclear agreement. These are all areas where 
he wants to spend more time focusing on them. And you saw just last night, um, you know, uh, President Biden initiate a call with President Xi to try to start putting the relationship in a better place, in a more productive, you know, pragmatic place where we can get some things done. Um, so I think that is their hope. But, you know, reality has a way of intervening. My, my old boss, Secretary Gates, was fond of saying, you know, um, we, we, have, we're, we have a 100% track record on predicting the next war. We've never gotten it right. So we, we tend to be surprised um, and get pulled into things that we didn't expect, 9-11 being a primary example. You mentioned, Michelle, the U.S.-China rivalry. Is this going to be the focal point for political and um, security and economic leadership for the rest of the 21st century? I think it's going to be a major focus, if not the focus. Um, you know, if you look at the Asia-Pacific or Indo-Pacific, it is the most consequential region for the United States and for, frankly, many Western economies in terms of prosperity and in terms of security. China is rising and it's making clear as it becomes more powerful economically and flexes its muscles militarily um, that it's not happy with the inherited rules-based order. It wants to change the status quo and it wants to use assert, very assertive, sometimes coercive means to do that. And so this is going to be a problem that we have to manage. But at the same time, you know, we don't want to open conflict um, between two nuclear powers. We have very critical areas of cooperation that we've got to figure out how to work together or else we're, we're all doomed, you know, <laughs> specifically climate change and preventing future pandemics. Um, and so this is a really challenging problem set. And I do think it will be the primary focus of U.S. foreign policy for many years to come, whether it's this administration or a future one. It just, it has, there's nothing that has, I think, greater impact on the well-being and security of Americans than how this comes out. So some have argued that conflict is inevitable. What do you think? I don't think it's inevitable. I think, again, I think this is about, first and foremost, competing and counterbalancing. I mean, the first thing we should be doing, which I think there's an effort to do, is really invest in the drivers of our own economic and technological competitiveness at home, that's you know, science and technology, research and development, getting the economy moving again, 21st century infrastructure, smart immigration policy that you know welcomes the best and brightest from around the world, tries to get them to stay in America and make their businesses, their enterprises here. Um, we're shoring up our alliances and partnerships, which um, is critical to counterbalancing China. We have a lot of allies and partners who share our concerns about China, who don't want to live in a might makes right world where China kind of bullies the rest of the world into submission. And so, you know, I think we, I think that that is going to be a focus, but I also think that, you know, neither Washington nor Beijing wants a military confrontation. I think the only way that happens is through miscalculation, you know, on the Chinese side in particular, it is the possibility that China starts to believe its own propaganda and narrative about U.S. decline. If they believe, you know, U.S. is a mess, we're polarized, our economy is in a shambles, we're not dealing with COVID correctly, yada, 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 that can create an overconfidence, that can create um, a sense of, hey, we can take some risk here, we can poke, 
United States, we can move because they won't respond. That sets the table for, you know, um, mischief and potentially aggression. So I think we have to, it's a moment where we have to not only shore up our domestic situation, shore up our alliances, but also be very clear with our resolve. You know, what are the interests and allies that we are willing to defend and make the investments necessary diplomatically and militarily to really strengthen deterrence. So there's no question that any aggression by China would be met with a response that would be more costly than, than they realize and, and hopefully will change their calculus. But we have a lot of work to get there. <laughs> but fascinating point that you make, Michelle, which is that investing domestically and strengthening our capacity to show our competitiveness but unity as a country may be part of the equation, maybe the most important part of the equation to avoid miscalculation. It is a huge part of the equation. You know, when I think about um, the financial crisis in 2008-9, we heard the same Chinese narrative then. Um, and I think they were surprised though how quickly we recovered from that. And we were sort of back, you know, um, at the table, if you will. Um, and, and so I think demonstrating that and this is something that historically the United States does really well. We are very resilient, whether you go back to after World War, you know, the Great Depression, World War II, Vietnam, um, you know, 9-11. Um, we're going to come back from this. And so if I had to bet on, you know, our, our, the cards we hold versus the cards China holds, I would bet on the United States if we play those cards well. You mentioned climate change and root causes earlier. Is that should climate change be a root fact, root cause factor considered in our national security? Absolutely. It is the one truly existential threat that is out there for all of us. And we understand that there's no way that we can accelerate the mitigation efforts that are necessary in light of what science is telling us about how fast the change is happening. There's no way we can do that without the major powers and the major emitters cooperating. Uh, and that includes US and China among many others. And so we have got to figure out how to have a shared sense of shared purpose and collaboration on that, even when we're having differences and, and managing our competition in other areas. So cyber. Um, colonial pipeline. We saw the disruptions in the United States. We saw the signals of the ability to have an impact without actually even having a physical attack on the United States. Do these, is the importance of AI, of digitalization, the impact that we're going to see with greater electrification as a result of concerns about climate change? Is this something that can promote cooperation with China and Russia to find solutions on cyber, on cyber, or does it make us more vulnerable because it points out those areas of, 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 of softness that others can potentially attack? Um, I think it's a, a little of both, but primarily the latter, meaning I think you know the internet of things and the digit digitization of everything is dramatically enhancing the or growing the attack service and the the all the different vulnerabilities that and the back doors and the windows that a determined hacker can use to get inside our systems and navigate from the company into the government systems and so forth. 
Um, so this is a huge problem. So we have got to improve our game in cybersecurity. Then this means much tighter um, and more effective collaboration between the public sector and the private sector on information sharing, on best practices for response um, and, and, and best technologies um, as that continues to evolve. Um, and at the same time, I think we need a very candid strategic dialogue separately with both China and Russia to try to take some types of attacks off the table by really being clear about playing out the scenarios. So for example, China's military doctrine talks about massive cyber attacks early in a conflict before the US is able to mobilize its forces on critical infrastructure, particularly the electricity grid around military bases. <clears throat> well, guess what? That same electricity grid is you know, the grid that hospitals use, that all kinds of civilian infrastructure uses. So if they were to actually carry out that approach and make such a massive attack, um, they would kill Americans. And then, and you really think an American president is that's gonna lessen his resolve? <coughs> I don't think so. So, you know, we need to have some candid conversations to say, are there some types of attacks that are so horrendous and would be so escalatory that we can take them off the table? <coughs> um, I'll let you take a drink of water. And uh, it's, you know, ironic in some ways that for three countries that have invested so much, in their defense infrastructures that one of the lowest cost forms of intervention could end up potentially becoming the most disruptive in practical terms in their economies and in their societies. So I, I agree with very much with what you're saying. Um, it, the Middle East, impossible to address fully in the time that we have, but um, you've mentioned already Iran, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, uh, Yemen, Syria, there's obviously the Middle East peace process, there's the demographic bulge in the region. And as one thinks about this a massive chain, array of challenges, is there a paradigm that we should think about um, or use to think about what security and stability in the Middle East might mean? Um, well, I think we need to go back to first principles and what are really our vital interests. Um, I think keeping Iran from becoming a nuclear weapon state <clears throat> is a vital interest. We need to build the necessary coalition to do that. Um, I think even though you know, our energy situation has changed and most Americans think that we no longer need to rely on the Middle East as a source, if this is a global market, an integrated market as you and your audience well know. And what happens in the Middle East can have very profound effects on energy prices and that affects all of us. And so we have to remain engaged in trying to in, in maintain stability and to build the, the preconditions for that. So I don't think the Middle East will have the same kind of focus in US policy as it had for the last 20 years since 9-11, but it's also not gonna be forgotten. It can't be forgotten. We have to pay attention to managing the dynamics there and making sure that we um, support stability, we contain Iran's nefarious behavior, and we try over time to, to support the evolution of these societies towards more openness um, and more um, political 
freedom and, uh, and economic engagement more broadly. The Abraham Accords um, may be one of the signature achievements of the last administration. Um, the dialogue they opened between Israel and some of the Arab states, will that continue? I think so. I think this has been a real um, pivot. Um, I think it's it's something that, you know, oftentimes as a Democrat, I'm asked, is there anything the Trump administration did right? You know, I think the Abraham Accords are very strategic and very important and will be continued by certainly to be supported by multiple US administrations going forward. It opens the door to much more strategic cooperation and, and potentially more normalized relations between Israel and the Gulf states. That said, I don't think we can take that process to its full potential without ultimately addressing the Israel-Palestinian conflict. And I know that the politics of that may not seem particularly promising right at this moment, but I do think we have to get a resolution to uh, a two-state solution at some point, or else that will continue to be a barrier towards you know, full normalization of Israel's relationships in the region. And, and indeed, uh, finding the political space on the agenda of the global community in the United States to be able to address that and to do it with commitment and seriousness is, is definitely gonna be a, a challenge. Yeah. Um, Michelle, maybe just to, to close out in the last five minutes on issues that separate us and, and what is needed to unite us. And on the topic of polarization, um, given what we've lived through um, with the pandemic, the differences that we've seen in vaccine access and recovery, there is a concern that the world could become yet more polarized between rich and poor, but with many different forms of political migration, security ramifications to that. Can you have a sense of, of what are, how deep is that polarization and what is it that we should fear and act on? Well, I do think that um, I would like to see the U.S. step up and play that traditional leadership role of rallying the international community around, you know, helping, um, you know, moving towards more equitable results. You know, being a leader on global vaccine distribution, being a leader on humanitarian assistance, on development assistance, on capacity building, and so forth. So I think internationally, we absolutely have to recognize that you know, we're all in this together. The pandemic knows no boundaries and we have to address it as a global community. Um, I'm, I'm more um, troubled, I mean, I'm even, I'm equally troubled and less confident in our ability to address the internal polarization that we're facing in the United States because we've gotten to a point where, you know, the two halves of our population have are operating from different fact bases, different sense of what the truth is. And when you can't agree on the basic facts, it's very hard to have a democratic discussion and debate about what the right solutions are. And so there's a lot of fundamental changes that I think we need to make. Everything from, you know, smart regulation of our social media platforms, because right now those are feeding the polarization by stovepiping the information that everyday Americans get and just kind of, you know, fueling their own existing biases. 
Um, civics education, I sound very old fashioned, but we got to bring that back. Um, experiences of national service, not just the military, where people of very different backgrounds can live alongside each other, work alongside each other, experience the diversity of Americans as a positive thing and sort of get rid of seeing someone of a different color or a different background or a different religion as the other and somebody to be hated instead of respected as a fellow American. I mean, there's just some really fundamental things, changes in our political financing and our political election system. There's just a very long agenda that we have to work through domestically to really get back to a place where we feel like our diversity is a source of national strength. Um, so I'm not saying that's gonna be easy or fast, but it is work we have to take on. Um, no, and critical to underscore, and if you take that to the point of international leadership, and maybe to close us out on this issue, what is it that the world is looking for to, to find credibility again in an international system that will give them a credible path to stability and security? I think the world needs to see that the system works for them, that it is equitable, that it does result in better economic outcomes, in you know, better health and education outcomes and better security outcomes. And frankly, there's, there's some tweaks and changes and updating to the global order that need to happen to reach those kinds of outcomes. But I don't think we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. I don't think we should follow China's lead and sort of start over with, you know, a very different set of values and a very different set of, you know, um, interests. I think we, we should adapt the system that we have and, and make it better, not just for the United States and the developed world, but also the developing. Um, and I'll just say, you know, call to action. Uh, I'm on the board of CARE, uh, the global NGO that focuses on women and girls and poverty around the world. And this pandemic has set back the development agenda, the anti-poverty agenda by at least a decade, if not a generation. So, you know, we, we just, you know, for Sisyphus rolling the rock up the hill, the, the rock just ran over us and we've got to go back and start pushing it up the hill again in terms of going after poverty and, and justice. So um, I hope that all of us will find our individual ways to redouble those efforts. Michelle, thank you for ending that on that note about the challenge of global poverty, the need to face up to it and to address it and to the, address the polarization it implies for the world. One of the things that's clear is that we face a world that is much more complicated than that we had in 2001. And as a result of that, we have to be able to address multiple problems multiple, in multiple countries, that we need partners to be able to do that. We need local partners to be able to be effective. Your emphasis on US-China was absolutely key, but really interesting the point that to be able to be credible, we have to strengthen ourselves at home to begin with. And then finally, a point that you make that is so critical is that to build credibility, we have to produce outcomes, outcomes of unity at home, outcomes of progress internationally, because as in all things, the ability to demonstrate with results is maybe the most powerful statement that we can make about our ability to actually promote prosperity in the future. 
a fascinating conversation, Michelle, um, a difficult time to be able to reflect back of, over what's happened over the last 20 years. But perhaps one of the most important things we can do is to reflect, to learn, and to honor those who lost their lives by being able to put those lessons to work. Michelle Flournoy, thank you so much for this conversation. Carlos, thank you so, so much. And I totally agree that the best way we can honor the sacrifice of those who've um, put their lives on the line, in some cases lost their lives in these last 20 years, is to learn from, from them and the lessons we need to learn to do better in the future. So thank you so much. Thank you.